Welcome to Elucidations. I'm Stephen Chen, undergraduate intern for the podcast. In this episode of Elucidations, hosted by Matt Tackman and Henry Curtis, we invited Professor Stephanie Capusta to discuss misgendering. Professor Capusta is assistant professor at Dalhousie University. She works on feminist philosophy, social and political philosophy, and ethics. Her recent publications include Intersex Diagnostics and Prognostics, Imposing Sex Predicate Determinacy, and Misgendering and Its Moral Contestability, which is also discussed in this episode. In the discussion, Professor Capusta criticized the philosophical account of gender that is based on a cluster of properties. That is, a person has to satisfy a minimum number of male and female properties to be categorized as male or female. Professor Capusta points out that the cluster account has exclusionary and marginalizing effects on non-passing transgender people. Other interesting questions covered in this episode include the distinction between respecting a person's gender and validating it, in what sense is misgendering a contestable use of language, the nature of the harm caused by misgendering, etc. Please enjoy. Elucidations. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Henry Curtis. With us today is Stephanie Capusta, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Dalhousie University, and she's here to discuss misgendering. Stephanie Capusta, welcome. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. I think probably our listeners are familiar with this terminology, but just in case people, you know, aren't up to date, what do terms like sort of trans and cis mean, or transgender versus cisgender? Well, I think what I mean by trans when I talk about transgender or trans, it's an umbrella term, particularly trans. It means, from my point of view, all those people who in some way reject, resist, or do not feel comfortable with the gender labels they were assigned at birth. And so, by way of contrast, cis people or cisgender people would be those persons who do, in some way, to a lesser or greater degree, of course, accept those gender labels that they were assigned at birth. So this is actually something I wonder about a lot. Yeah. So does cisgender mean that you're comfortable with the labels you've been assigned at birth, or does it mean you're not that uncomfortable, as it were? Well, yeah, that's an interesting question. I would I would say that there has to be a certain, at least quite a few contexts in which you would say, I am a man or I am a woman, where those labels were assigned to you at birth. So you may not be psychologically comfortable to a greater or lesser degree uh, with those labels, but there has to be a range of contexts if you are willing, in some sense, even begrudgingly, to say, yes, I am a man, I am a woman, in some sense. Would you say that in order for someone, in your view, to be trans, they would have to 
take the discomfort that they feel with the gender they were assigned at birth and identify as a gender different than that? Or could a certain degree of uncomfortability itself qualify someone as being trans? Yes, this is quite a complex question, actually, because there are some trans people who, as we say in trans communities, live, or in some trans communities, live stealth, Mm -hmm. who self-identify as the gender opposite, if we want to use those opposites, Mm -hmm. to the gender they were assigned at birth, but for various reasons cannot publicly declare themselves to be of that gender. Mm -hmm. Um, So from a philosophical point of view, I think those are very difficult cases. I think there has to be some sort of at least psychological rejection Mm -hmm. or existential rejection, if you prefer that kind of terminology of the label, the gender label that you're assigned at birth, although it may not be publicly expressed. I've found that my students are often surprised to hear that there are like many different ways via language that we acknowledge each other's genders. So what are some examples of that? Um, well, the way we acknowledge people's genders probably is through pronouns, through pronoun use. Uh, very often through first names and appellations of various sorts where those appellations are gendered according to commonly accepted social conventions. There are far more kind of, if you want, pragmatic ways in which gender is self-declared or asserted. So this might be something like using a particular washroom instead of another washroom applying for a driver's license, perhaps, where you have to put your gender in. So in a broad sense, I think you can be gendered, either self-gendered in various ways or gendered by others, not just through utterances or speech acts, but also in various practical things that you do through certain processes or or behaviours that you undertake or don't undertake in a given context. That's interesting. So whenever there's any kind of social practice where the assumption is this is a practice primarily that people of gender X are entitled to do, by doing that, you implicitly convey the message to the outside world that you are of that relevant gender. Yes, but then again, it's kind of alluding to what we said earlier It's not always the case that in public what I declare really corresponds to my subjective sense of the gender I am uh, because of these complications of why people might think it's safer not to declare their own psychological, personal sense of who they are. Isn't one big reason for that that sometimes it's just not physically safe, like the person could be under threat of some sort of violence from their community? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think in a lot of contexts that and in various countries, as we know, if we look at the degree of violence, particularly against trans women, particularly against trans women of colour, it can be extremely unsafe to declare your gender in various open ways as understood as really declaring this is who I am. That can be a very unsafe thing to do. 
So um, recently you published a paper, Misgendering and its Moral Contestability, in Hypatia, um, a journal of feminist philosophy. Could you maybe just start us off by discussing what you take misgendering to be? Yes, so misgendering, I think, has this broad sense in which it would be any kind of practice, be it linguistic or other, by which you are explicitly or implicitly labelled as a particular gender with which you do not identify. So, for example, this could be use of the incorrect pronoun. It could be, um, for example, in the case of a, a trans woman, it could be terms that connote maleness or masculine when applied to that person. Obviously, a lot might depend on particular conventions, linguistic conventions, other conventions. But the practical implication would be that this person is not of the gender that they self-identify with. And then in a more kind of, I guess, technical sense, the sense that I consider in the article you mentioned, I want it to encompass the term misgendering, to encompass all those deployments of gender terms and gender concepts that, in particular in reference to trans women, either exclude those women from the category or the social kind woman, or within that category and social kind, marginalise them in some way or make them non-central cases, or hard cases, or problematic cases, according to the theory that you're discussing. What would be like an everyday example of misgendering? Um, so one happened to me today. I was at... I'm sorry in, to hear that. In a, in a, yes, it's, uh, it happens to me occasionally. So I was in a coffee shop, and I ordered a coffee and a sweet, and... The suite wasn't available, and the server said something like to a colleague, could you get this suite for him? Uh, I was standing there at the counter, obviously. So that would be an everyday example of misgendering. Uh, would that also be an example of the second thing you mentioned, whereby uh, a person is made to feel like they're uh, being excluded from full membership in the gender category that they identify with? Um, so this second idea, I see, certainly I think it is implied in every individual act of everyday misgendering. But this second concept of misgendering that I developed um, in my thinking that appears partly in that article is the idea that there can be theoretical accounts, philosophical accounts of what gender is that explicitly or implicitly exclude, for example, transgender women from the category woman or from the social kind woman. Some accounts, for example, of gender are kind of cluster accounts. So I refer to cluster accounts as accounts of a general kind where there is a series of membership conditions. They may describe certain properties that an individual 
satisfies in order to belong to the social kind woman. Now, cluster accounts have this often desirable property that you don't need to exhibit all of the properties. You don't need to satisfy all of the conditions to belong to the kind or the category, but just enough of them. But the way very often that these accounts are formulated is in terms of properties or conditions that non-passable or non-passing transgender women, and I can come back to that in a minute, will fail to satisfy or will satisfy very few of them. Okay, So in a sense, if you're talking about a kind membership of which is guaranteed by satisfying enough of a certain number of criteria, then if you satisfy fewer of those or if you get to a position where there is a borderline case, you become a borderline case, I regard that as a situation of what I call marginalisation, okay, where it is possibly a vague matter whether you are a member or not a member, or you are a borderline case because you don't satisfy very many of those properties. And since I've begun talking about passing privilege, I think that is a privilege to be perceived within society as a cisgender woman. It is a kind of a privilege. I do acknowledge that passing transgender women do have some problems of their own that are specific to them. But on the whole, I would say that passing as cisgender within society is a kind of privilege. But the problem with then these cluster accounts be they family resemblance accounts, whatever kinds of accounts they are, it is the non-passing transgender women who will tend to be marginalised. So I like to talk about a specific example. I ask readers to imagine Laura, a late transitioner, um, perhaps around 50, 55 years old, um, who's been struggling with her gender identity perhaps for many years, did not come out as a child or as a young person because decades ago this was a very difficult process, a completely different process than what it is today in many societies. There was no internet, uh, there was no general information and people of that generation very often went through life, they would get married, they would have children and then coming out as trans became even more difficult because of the extra burdens involved. So I treat that kind of person and I say, well, say, as I know is the case with many transgender people I know, say because of health problems or various other reasons that a trans woman cannot have gender conforming surgery, perhaps may not even be able to have hormonal treatment of any kind, um, because it is risky for their health. Now, such a person very often will not be visibly feminized, may still have a very deep voice, may still have big hands, big feet, might even have a five o'clock shadow, will not generally have typically female body parts either, and yet self-identifies as a woman. 
with cluster accounts, it is very difficult to see how such a person can satisfy enough of the properties because the properties usually include some sort of um, biological element in them, norms of appearance, satisfying certain norms of paradigmatically feminine appearance, for example. And none of this is there. Sometimes it seems to be purely self-declaration, really, that's the deciding factor. And cluster accounts don't seem to be able to take this into account. And so I like looking from the perspective of Laura at the issue of misgendering within philosophy because I think it undermines a lot of the accounts, not just the cluster accounts, but um, a lot of other accounts that are based on or allude in some way to biological characteristics. So tell me if this is right. I guess the idea behind a cluster definition of what a woman is would be something like, in order to be a woman, you have to have properties X, Y, and Z. I don't know what, you know, you wear earrings, you wear makeup, you have certain biological characteristics. We have like a list and it's probably not going to work as a definition to say in order to be a woman, you have to satisfy every property on the list. Cause look, this woman over here doesn't wear makeup. This one over here doesn't wear earrings, but we have some sense that, you know, if you satisfy enough of them, like half of them or whatever, 60% of them, or you pass some threshold, that's enough to count as a man or a woman or what have you. And then it seems like maybe the problem that Laura poses for even this attempt to sort of salvage a definition in terms of, having this list of properties is that Laura identifies as a woman despite meeting only a very low percentage of these properties, if any. Yes, that's correct. And in addition, if you have then a corresponding cluster account of what it means to be a man, Laura may actually satisfy quite a few of the properties that count towards belonging to the gender man which would lead to the rather unfortunate and undesirable from a trans perspective conclusion that you could call Laura a man because, for example, I don't know, she dresses in a certain way or she has a low voice or she has a penis or whatever is within your cluster account. So in the place of the cluster account, you discussed earlier that we may want to actually put self-avowal in the place of the cluster count as the relevant factor with respect to statements about the genders of particular people. I mean, is this right? Could you maybe talk a little bit more about this? Uh, yes, I think this is a kind of an ongoing philosophical project that I myself am interested in. Um, so I do work on social ontology, and I do want to develop a theory within social ontology, which within which one can definitively say trans women are women, trans men are men. I don't think, from my own research, I don't think that such an account exists at the moment, unfortunately. I think there are various moves, helpful moves, very interesting moves within social and political philosophy, broadly construed, to make sure that gender self-identifications 
have a certain priority and are respected. And I think that's good. But I find I'm still kind of dissatisfied, particularly in um, social ontology, as I said, with the extant theories, because it's difficult to see how we can say transgender women simply are women. Because it's one thing to say that someone is a woman and another thing to say we should respect her gender self-identification. I think these are two different claims and I see at the moment a little bit of a gap. And social ontology is not easy, as people have pointed out to me. It's very difficult to specify what it means to be a cisgender woman in many contexts and I think that's quite right. Um, But I think it's kind of important for transgender men and women from a philosophical point of view to be able to say look here's a theory according to which you are men you are women period you also regard that type of kind of philosophical move the sort where someone might say well according to our theory we're going to say that for ethical reasons we should use a certain pronoun but not really consider the person to be the gender associated with that pronoun that's one of the sorts of um acts of philosophical misgendering that you discuss right Right, yes. So because philosophical misgendering has this kind of more specific meaning, it can mean any theoretical account of how to apply gender terms or gender concepts or criteria for defining who is or characterizing who is a woman, any such account that excludes people, causes them psychological harms quite possibly and will diminish the credibility of the accounts of who they are so it's a kind of a what we call an epistemic injustice in that we misgender someone and therefore don't take their statement of who they are at face value and as you were saying one way of doing that is implicitly or explicitly in your philosophical account to say as some philosophers have done, is look, we have this kind of account of who is a woman, for example, with transgender women or women, cisgender women in general, doesn't quite fit perhaps all transgender women. It doesn't fit Laura, for example. But there are good ethical and political reasons to call her a woman. I find that's very unsatisfactory because you're not really validating their claims to the full. You're saying, well, hey, you might claim you're a woman. We really know that you're not, according to our theory, but we respect your appellation or your self-declaration. And that's, you know, in itself, it's kind of questionable from a trans point of view. Yeah, it almost feels like if we stop there, we'd just be saying like, oh, we'll humor you, but we don't actually believe that you have membership in the category or whatever. Yes, and I think that's correct. And um, so I think any any move that goes that way is kind of, I don't know, dissatisfying and possibly misgendering. Of course, it depends on the details of how the philosophical account is formulated in detail. So I'm not making a, some sort of general accusation here. It's just that I have come across theories of that nature. And... Uh, I list some in my article. So. 
So one way I think um, in your paper that you very interestingly relate theoretical philosophy with practice is by what you call the criterion for unacceptability that you express counterfactually. So you say we have these philosophical theories of gender, including the sort that we were discussing earlier that might say, well, we don't necessarily think people are in this category, but for ethical or political reasons, we'll say that they are. And you say these are only acceptable if it is the case that if they were to be applied in broader society, they would not cause harm or offense to trans people. And they're unacceptable if they would cause that harm. Can you speak a little bit more about that criterion? Yeah, I I quite like this criterion. I think um, it forces philosophers to stay grounded. So if X is a philosophical deployment of the gender term woman, that means it is just its extension or the theory that explains what that means, what woman means. Okay. So a description of what a woman is, for example, would be the gender term deployment of woman or one example of such. Then I ask myself, you know, how can misgendering happen in philosophy? I mean, Laura certainly is not necessarily a philosopher, so she's never heard these philosophical theories. She doesn't come in contact with them. But there is something still questionable that I want to point out. And so I established this criterion, which, I don't know, it has some allusions to various similar other criteria, like in Kantian ethics, universalizability. There are certain kind of Rawlsian ideas as well in political philosophy, a publicity criterion, for example. What you do is to find out whether your gender term deployment is acceptable, is that you imagine this kind of counterfactual and you say that deployment is unacceptable from a transgender standpoint. If the deployment would be oppressive or harmful with respect to some group of transgender women, particularly when implemented or broadly applied within society. So what you do is you imagine, well, let's take this account of what a woman is and let's say it became law or it became government policy or it became the general criterion on the street according to which we would label people. And we ask, what would that do to people like Laura? Would she, for example, suffer microaggressions? Would she experience a diminishment of her self-respect? Would she experience epistemic injustice? Would her credibility diminish? And we ask these questions uh, about these harms. And if we could fairly reasonably say, yes, she would experience one or more of these harms, then I say that this gender term deployment is unacceptable. Yeah, right. So it's something like, if we're going to try to figure out what gender is, what being a man is, what being a woman is, we're going to try to you know, get to the bottom of what it means to be these things and have an account. There are lots of different things you have to take into consideration regarding whether or not the account is correct. And what you're doing here is you're highlighting one thing that's on that list. Namely, if we're choosing between several possible definitions of what counts as a man, what counts as a woman, and one of them has these sort of unacceptable consequences, namely, if it were to be adopted by everybody, 
someone like Laura wouldn't count as a woman doesn't look so great for that definition. We might want to pass it up and consider another one. Yes, that's correct. So I should emphasize that really I'm talking about gender term deployments. I'm not making great ontological claims or metaphysical claims at the moment because I'm still thinking about the metaphysics of gender and I don't really have a set opinion. But the question is really gender term deployment. So really it's an argument about language and the harms that language can inflict. And the acceptability or unacceptability criteria are with regard to the deployments of terms such as man and woman. So a gender term deployment is either intentional or it's extensional. Okay, so it's intentional if I give a description of what woman means. Okay, I give a series of conditions for the application of that term. And that's intentional with an S. Yes. Uh, S-I-O-N-A-L. That's that's correct. Intentional uh, with an S. It's extensional if I ask, well, whom do the competent language users point to or indicate when they use the word woman? Okay. But those are both, both the intentional and the extensional or the connotational and denotational are gender term deployments. But it's really still talking about language. Okay. So I give also an example in my work of a doctor who's meeting Laura in his office. And the question is, for example, whether Laura has prostate cancer. Okay. The doctor may use the term man intentionally to mean someone who has a prostate. So that would be an intentional deployment. There is a description that someone satisfies in order to be labelled as a man, in quotation marks. And my argument is, if that is microaggressive towards Laura, if it is disrespectful, if it is marginalising towards Laura, if it triggers also, for example, if it's triggering for Laura, if it triggers various reliving memories of certain past experiences for Laura, then the solution is not to say, well, the doctor is the expert in the use of that term. That is not the solution. The solution is, Mr. Doctor, please use different terms. Use different language. Refer to people with prostates or talk in some other way in which these harms are not being inflicted on Laura. Right. Okay. So when we talk about our deployment of these terms, we're talking about which group of people we're singling out as having these terms apply to them or something like that through the way we use them. So it's a matter of singling people out through our language use. Yes. So it's really, I guess, I'm looking for a way to say that irrespective of expertise or social authority, there are certain uses of language, of gendered language in particular, which are what I call morally contestable, irrespective of who's doing it. And 
misgendering is a very good example, I think, of this morally contestable term deployment or language deployment. So in the case with Laura and the doctor, you bring up an interesting objection to the intentional deployment of the term woman. I also think one of the very constructive things in your paper is a critique that you have of the extensional use and deployment of the term woman, specifically with regards to woman being taken as a natural kind term. You say, and I like this quite a bit, there's an issue because typically with natural kind terms, we want to say that the extension is determined by the way it's the term is used in linguistic community. But you raise the issue, which linguistic community are we going to be discussing? Should it be a simple majoritarian account or should it be weighted in some other way? Could you maybe talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so the natural kind issue is distinct, I think, from the extensional hmm. uh, accounts. So the natural kind issue, someone might say, well, what is the fuss about? I am going to use man with respect to Laura as meaning someone with a penis. Okay, It's a biological criterion. It's just there. It's, say, people with penises belong to a biological kind, and we're going to call it man. I think that is incorrect for the same reason that the doctor is incorrect in calling Laura a man. But the point you mentioned about then the extensional deployments of gender terms, that does relate to the community of competent language users. And I simply point out that if you say, well, let's look at the way competent language users use the term man or use the term woman and stick with that as the extension of these terms, you have to ask, well, which community of competent language users? Because you can end up with a kind of a linguistic tyranny of the majority. And you ha the question is, I think, an important one because you have to realise that trans people are not incompetent language users. In fact, contestational or counter-current uses of gender terms presuppose language competence. So resistant deployments or contestatory deployments of gender terms rely on the fact that, for example, gender non-conforming or transgender people or trans people know how the term is standardly employed within society. And then the question then becomes, well, whose deployments then, if, say, there is a community of trans people and there's another community, a majoritarian, say, community, whose deployment are we going to take as the standard or the linguistically normative deployment? And, of course, saying, well, obviously the standard cisgender use of man or woman should be the uh, deployment we accept and we use and we regard as normative is not of going to avoid and in fact will exacerbate the moral and political harms that we're trying to avoid. So one thing I'm fascinated by on this topic is like why we put so much stock in being correctly gendered. I mean, if you compare it to like another property, you know, if somebody accidentally said, hey, you in the gray shirt, when in fact I was wearing a green shirt, 
you know, I wouldn't really care. I'd be like, oh, I, you know, it's a green shirt, but whatever. I can tell you're talking to me. It, you know, like getting my shirt right, I don't take to be a really important matter. It's not like it's going to injure me in some way if somebody gets the color of my shirt wrong. But gender seems like it's not like that. We want people to get our genders right. But why is that? It's not immediately obvious. It seems like maybe there's some work to be done there in explaining, like, what's the nature of the harm if somebody gets my gender wrong? Yeah, that's quite a big question, I think. And I can only kind of signal certain points here. For one, I don't claim that everybody is kind of particularly concerned about whether they are misgendered or not. I have encountered some people who really don't seem to care whether someone misgenders them or not. I think those people exist. I don't deny their existence. And certainly perhaps a lot of my ideas may not apply to those people. It is true, on the other hand, that as you point out, many people, probably most people, do care quite significantly and quite uh, deeply about whether they are misgendered or not, particularly if they perceive a certain pattern of persistent misgendering. So, for example, you may occasionally be misgendered by mistake. Someone sees you from the back, uses the wrong pronoun, and misgenders you that in some way accidentally. Happens to me a lot with waitstaff. Yes, exactly. So that is a kind of a, an accidental or an incidental misgendering in the broad sense. I'm really concerned with this kind of harmful, very often persistent kind of misgendering that goes on. And also the misgendering that is, if you want, inflected by the identity and the experiences of the person who is misgendered. I think the situation is different when someone has not struggled to assert their gender identity, has not lived in a marginalised social position on account of their gender identity. The people who have been harmed by gender identity are those who are, and I mentioned three things here, those who, for whom misgendering is a microaggression, by which I understand a kind of utterance that is a slight, that is offensive, that is insulting, that may seem relatively minor on one occasion, but its persistent nature, its um, iterative nature, its repeated nature, as psychological research on microaggressions has shown, can have really rather deep and nasty psychological effects, like um, hypersensitivity, lack of sleep, anxiety issues, and so on. So certainly, I think many, many trans people have struggled with asserting their gender identity and um, have been subject to these kinds of microaggressions. The second harm is the lack of self-respect that people can experience if they're particularly if they're persistently misgendered so 
in as much as for many trans people growing into their gender identity beginning to assert it with confidence has been a struggle is one of their major life projects then denying the reasonableness or the rationality of that life project the doability if you want of that life project is as people have pointed out very destructive of self-respect of really knowing that my life project is worth doing that my life project is worth living and i think misgendering in all its forms can lead to that kind of moral political harm and thirdly there is the problem of credibility someone who can shape contemporary discourses about gender so it's a kind of what we call hermeneutical injustice in the sense that my say of what my gender is and perhaps of what gender is in general is not contributing to discourses about gender i am kind of marginalized as a knower as someone who can have valuable input here and also my credibility as a gender witness if you are a witness of what gender is i suffer a credibility deficit basically so all those harms are really what i'm focusing on so it's as you see it's quite different from the case of hey you in the green shirt you know um do you think it's analogous to other kinds of life projects that you might take to be really important or central um i'm thinking about like you know I don't know, suppose I decided to set aside my life to study improvisational piano. And then I went up on stage and I started performing. And it was like people in the audience couldn't even tell that I was playing music or couldn't even tell that I was acting like I wasn't even doing the thing that I feel like I'm devoting my life to doing. Like, do you think that's sort of like a possible analogy or is there something different there? Um, that's a good question. I think there is something different because... Um, with gender it's a question of a social position whereas with concert pianist it's more profession or something else it's not like social kinds race gender very often ethnicity that socially position us in that kind of way so um i would say there is that quite considerable difference which doesn't mean to deny that someone can genuinely be harmed in their ambition in their life project of being a concert pianist particularly if they have the competence and if they have the ambition and the hard work and yet for some morally irrelevant reasons those life projects are frustrated so this may be a bit of a broad question but do you think in recent years the characterizations of the term woman and its reference and the appropriate situations for its deployment that are provided in feminist philosophy do you think that there has been some progress that's been made in terms of avoiding the kind of misgendering that you discuss in the paper or do you not see that kind of progress ah uh, yes i do see that progress i would say that um there is progress and there is certainly a keenness by several authors and also i know from 
personal conversations to certainly to affirm trans self-identifications and see that as very positive. Where I think there is still some work to do is, as I mentioned before, this kind of theoretical gap that I'm sensing between the political and ethical postulate or desideratum to respect gender self-identifications and the kind of metaphysical theories of what gender is. I still think there's this gap there that needs to be filled, and that's a project for the future. Stephanie Capusta, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at at elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.